Greetings, everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune into our Bible study for this week. In case you missed it, last week we started looking at the book of Esther, and uh, as well as in our Bible studies, we are going to also share in some sermons over the course of August. So if you happen to miss those out, you're welcome to catch up on them after today's Bible study. But today we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 2, uh, carrying on part of the story that we started on Sunday, but we're going to sort of zone in today from verse 8 to verse 23. So if you want to take your Bibles out, Esther chapter 2, and I'm going to pray for us while you are doing that. So let's pray. Lord God, as we turn to your scriptures today, we ask that the Holy Spirit would make known to us the important things that we need to take home, the challenges, the words of encouragement, the words of wisdom and truth that you have for us today. And so we give you this time and pray it may be meaningful and fruitful in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yes, friends, we are going to, what I'm going to do today, I'm not going to read through from verse 8 to 23 in its entirety. Um, first, what I, I'm going to take it a couple of verses at a time and then we'll throw out some reflections. I may end up asking you a lot more questions today than you've had in the past, but um, that will helpfully, hopefully help us. To, to dig a little bit deeper into, into this passage. So remember that one of the main characters in the book of Esther, besides Esther herself and Mordecai, is King Xerxes. Xerxes is the Greek form of the king's name. If you want his Persian name, it's even more difficult to pronounce than Xerxes. It's Ahasuerus. Osiris, something like that. So he is the son of Darius I. Darius I left uh, a lot of his wealth and his kingdoms to his son um, Xerxes. And um, if you look at and you read some of the historians around this time, one particularly um, Her uh, Herodotus, who says that if you look at Xerxes's life and his character, he was a very cruel man and a very sensual man, which you can see obviously um, in some of these early chapters. He ruled... Uh, King Xerxes ruled from 486 to 465 BC, so for 20 years. And a lot of what's happening at this time, besides Queen Vashti um, saying no to the king, trying to parade her around all of his um, army generals and so on, is also he had a failed invasion of, of Greece. And uh, there's the famous Battle of uh, Thermopylae, and a few other ones there. So we're dealing with a man who's very complex, and into the midst of this we have um, the story of Queen Esther. So, verse 8, When the king's order, so this is King Xerxes' order, an edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So just to backtrack, the order is that they are going to look now for a new queen, and all the young women in the lands have been invited or instructed or forced to come and uh, to come parade before the king. Verse 9, Esther pleased him and won his favor. This is talking about Haggai now. He's the, he's the eunuch in charge of this whole process. 
Immediately, he provided Esther with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Now, if you just think about this, and, and the mind boggles at the at the the scale of this undertaking. So Esther is just one of the many many women that are brought to the the, the, the harem. She's assigned seven female attendants. Now, even if the seven that are given to her um, are a response to the favor that she has won with Hagar, there still are a lot of other attendants who are going to be caught up in this whole process, showing again the, the huge wealth and riches that the king has at his disposal. I mean, this, this whole thing that he's put into place now is all about choosing a new queen for himself. And we also, um, in the background, see how God's providence is, is allowing Esther to find favor with, with people that from the outside one would think she wouldn't find favor. I mean, Haggai is a non-believer, he's a Gentile, and yet we see through the story of Esther that God is preparing a way for her to be noticed by the king and then ultimately to be in that position as the queen to save the Jewish people down the line. But that's obviously a little bit further in the story in the weeks to come. So verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So we should be asking ourselves a question at this point when we see verse 10 is why did Mordecai suggest that she keeps quiet about her faith? Many of us, when we're listening to this Bible study today, have grown up or experienced in the church context that, that it's wrong for us to keep silent about our faith. And um, we even maybe hear the words of Jesus in the background that if we disown him in front of people, that he will disown us in front of his father. So, so what is happening here? Um, you know, even in the Jewish customs of the day, not speaking out for your faith would have been seen as um, as being very negative. You know, one was encouraged to speak out uh, for for your faith and about your faith. So, because we know the outcome of the story, we we could think that maybe Mordecai is just being strategic, or maybe he's got this foresight or God-given wisdom that he's withholding or he's told Esther to withhold her nationality for a particular reason. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this much, but you know how in the English language we will sometimes speak about white lies. Now, I'm sure that every one of us listening to this at some point has told a white lie. And more often than not, we have told it because we've tried to uh, spare somebody some kind of pain or anxiety. So is this Mordecai's modus operandi? Um, is it that he's just holding out for the opportune moment for her to reveal her nationality? Uh, I mean, if you think about all the kosher rules and all the Jewish laws that Esther would still have to follow and Mordecai have to follow, it's miraculous actually that they were able to keep their faith secret. 
I mean, just in terms of the, the eating in public, for example, I mean, that has a whole lot of other rules at, uh, at play. And then if you compare the story of Esther and Mordecai with someone like, say, Daniel, who refused to compromise his dietary rules for King Nebuchadnezzar and how God was seen to bless his faithfulness, we could ask ourselves a question is like, you know, why would God suddenly overlook Esther and Mordecai's um, unkosher lifestyle? Now, these are kind of deep questions to ask, and I'm, I'm actually going to ask them of us without giving you any answers. But, you know, we also wonder, does Esther have any choice in the matter? Is it at this particular point in the journey just about survival um, and not being, um, you know, not being treated unequally by Haggai and, and the royal palace if they found out that she was a Jew? So anyway, those are questions we, we hold in the back of our minds as we carry on with the story. Um, and even to ask, just before I get to verse 12, is in this whole story of Esther, what is God doing when he allows a, a young Jewess, Esther, to marry a Gentile like Xerxes? Because even in the context of the times, you know, Jews were forbidden to marry anybody of another religion or another culture. Um, and... And Xerxes was a worshipper, we believe, of Zoroaster, which is an Iranian uh, is a religion based around an Iranian-speaking prophet. It's one of the world's oldest religions. And, um, you know, we've got to keep asking ourselves, you know, what is the Lord doing in this whole story? But perhaps I'm just getting ahead of myself. Verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go to the king, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the woman. That was six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. Now, as we read that, I'm sure many, many of us, men and women alike, are thinking to ourselves, wow, imagine having six months or actually 12 months of a spa treatment. What luxury that would be. And um, it's all just the way of getting these women to look their ultimate best and in, if you like, the peak of their physical condition to be in front of the king for this moment. And verse 13 then carries on to say, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So the king would see each young woman at their best. She could get dressed up in whatever she wanted or the jewelry or this treatment so that in this moment, this one night that she has with the king, she would be able to hopefully create a good impression. Or that was all the young women in the land were hoping to make that good impression. Verse 14, in the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz. There was the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Now, because there are young people that may be listening to this, I'm not going to fill in the dots, but you can do uh, that yourselves. This is a PG-rated Bible study, like I say, but you can imagine what happens. They go to the king's chambers. Um, the next morning, they go back to the rest of the harem, and if the king liked the, the, the young ladies, he would then summon them by name sometime in the future. But you really had to create a good impression with the king. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, 
to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And this is also quite an interesting thing, that there seems to be this relationship of trust and favor and respect between Esther and Haggai. And uh, more than likely, Esther just had so much natural beauty that she didn't need to take a whole lot of extra things to try and impress the king. And we see also in this, knowing the story, that God is at work despite of all the outward things that we put on or the masks that we wear. And then uh, verse 15 ends by saying, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. And this, I think, comes through in many other examples in the scripture passages where we see someone like Joseph who found favor in Egypt despite his circumstances, despite all the hardships he went through. We read in Genesis that he found favor. Even with non-believers, he found favor. The same with Daniel in Babylon. And I think this message is important for us, friends, is that we as Christians live in a world um, where there is a lot of unbelief, there are a lot of unbelievers. And so with God on our side, with God in our hearts, with Christ in our heart, we need to trust that if we are meant to find favor with people or opportunities open up for us to share the gospel um, or to share about God, that God would allow that to take place. We This word favor is an interesting one. Because if you read in Luke 2, verse 52, you would see that even Jesus, um, the Bible says, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Go and have a read of that and you'll see, you'll see Luke 2, 52. So as Jesus himself grew up, so his influence spread wider and wider. And this favor, this blessing um, was instrumental in his life just equally um, in the story with Esther and, like I mentioned, Daniel and Joseph. So verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. So this is a long time in waiting. Remember that it was only in the fourth year of his reign that he decided now he wanted to get a new queen and then had to go through all the process of all the interviews and the whole year-long beauty treatment and so on. So sometimes we read the stories and the scriptures and they seem to follow very quickly, but there's a lot of time that lapses in between. Um, perhaps Xerxes was still getting over the, um, the disappointment and the anger of the defeat at the hands of the Greeks, um, still probably very grumpy and so on. But this takes a long time, God's story, to unfold. Verse 17, and now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vasti. And so, I mean, one wonders what happened in this moment. Was it love at first sight? Um, when you hear about the kind of person that Xerxes was, you're not so sure about that. Um, you know, one, maybe it's a harsh judgment to make, but you're not sure whether this king, King Xerxes, is actually even capable of, of love. It seems that he's just such a power-hungry kind of guy. But whatever the story is, um, Esther wins his favor. And so he makes her his queen. 
Acts chapter 15, verse 18, if you read it, I think it's the King James Version. It's interesting. It says, known to God from eternity are all of his works. And we just see God at play in this bigger story. And then verse 18, the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. And so we find another banquet. My goodness, it seems like the Persians love to throw a party, just like the Romans later after them. And the reason for this party is because he's found a queen, somebody to take Vasti's place. And it's interesting here that the, the, the holiday is proclaimed, just like we've had last, uh, on Monday, the National Women's Day, where, where people get to enjoy a day off and to, to remember women who've gone before us to make the world a better place for women and children. So this seems to be a national holiday declared by the king and distributes gifts. So even the commoners would probably be getting gifts um, to enjoy the king's happiness and the fact that he has now finally found a new queen. Moving on, um, so we're moving away now from this particular moment to see that there's another event that takes place. Verse 19, when the young ladies were assembled for a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, the king's gate often was a place of meeting and discussions and all kinds of things taking place. And... Uh, something interesting happens at this particular point. Verse 20, Esther had kept her secret, her family background, a secret and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do so, for she continued to follow his instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. And um, again, we come back to this question of his influence over her. What does it say to us about him? Um, does it mean that we must keep silent as to who we are? Does this make God happy? Or, or how do you reflect on this? Um, obviously now we read the story from knowing how it ends, and so it seems a very wise or, you know, that there was going to be a time when she was going to reveal her nationality. But verse 20 is making the point clear that Mordecai had this influence over Esther, like a father figure. He guided her and instructed her. Verse 21, during this time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So, yeah, anger seems to be a common theme coming up in these first two chapters. And in their anger, they, they conspire, but they do it in a foolish kind of way because the plot becomes known to Mordecai. Now, plots from within a royal palace and even within a kingdom are not uncommon. Um, sometimes there's jealousy. Maybe the king treated them badly. Who knows? But the irony of this whole thing, although Mordecai finds out the plot. If you read verse 22, he found out about this plot and he tells Queen Esther that, that later on, many, many years down the line, that King Xerxes is actually killed by the commander of the royal bodyguard. He's assassinated um, by, the, as I say, the commander of the royal bodyguard and one of the eunuchs. So this particular issue that we're reading about in verse 21 is very serious. The king always had to be on his guard, and I'm sure always looking over his shoulder. 
um, didn't know who he could trust and, and who was on his side. Mordecai finds out about the plot. He tells Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Now, obviously, in this verse, I'm reading that Mordecai is very loyal to the king. I mean, if he didn't like the king, he could have just kept quiet about it. But there is also this, this suggestion of providence versus co coincidence in this, um, knowing that the king could have the power to destroy the Jewish people, um, which we see Haman trying to influence. There is a reason why Mordecai kind of tells Esther and who in turn tells the king. When the reporters investigated verse 23 and they found out to be true, these two officials were impaled on poles. Sounds very gruesome, but that's the nature of how life was certainly 500 years BC. And then this was recorded in the book in the presence of the king. So where we've got to today may seem, um, you know, maybe a little bit bitty, but it brings us to a few questions, and I'm going to ask us these questions as we prepare ourselves for, for the message on Sunday, which we're going to reflect on chapter 3. Um, but the, the first question I want to ask is this. Can ungodly leaders, so non-believing leaders, can they mess up or even aid God's plans? Think about that. Can God still use them in his plans, or can they even mess up God's plans? Then the second question is, do you think Mordecai and Esther were acting as secret disciples? Or was this just strategic? When I say secret disciple, think about Nicodemus in the New Testament, who often came to Jesus to ask questions and, and follow Jesus, but almost secretly. And then the last question to ask is, is there a part of us that is secretive in our faith? Um, and what would prevent us? What is making us afraid to share our belief in Jesus? That's a question that comes to me as, as, we, as we read through this. And so, friends, like I said on Sunday, if you're listening, we, we deal with this question of providence versus coincidence. All these things that are happening, um, when we take a step back, we see God is at work, even in ways and means that we can never fully understand. And so as we reflect on this today, I pray that maybe God has inspired you to do some more reading or just answer the questions I've posed to you. But may God help us in our search for him and to know that he is as close as a prayer away from each one of us. Friends, if you are listening and you've managed to get all the way to the end today, well done. Thank you so much for your time. Um, if you are planning to come to our service on Sunday, either one of them, please phone and register to attend worship. It's very imperative that we keep our numbers below the required amount and that each person is registered. Otherwise, the rest of us, I will see you online or you will see me online. And uh, I pray that you have a blessed week. So let's pray together. Lord God, sometimes when we read the scriptures and we hear the story unfolding and we read names of people and places, it, it may not speak to us um, immediately. But the more we dwell on it, Lord God, I pray 
that all of the story, all of your hand at work behind the scenes would speak into our lives. Because sometimes our own lives are just filled with um, perhaps times and dates and people and we wonder where you are at work. But we trust, Lord Jesus, that through your spirit, when our lives are in your hands, that you are working things out according to your plans and purposes for us. And so teach us to rest in that and to trust in your goodness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, friends. Chat to you soon. Bye-bye.